Hear that? It's the call of the Crave. And when the Crave calls, you know what to do. Try the $5 Bacon Bundle, because the only thing better than a White Castle slider is a White Castle slider topped with crispy hickory smoked bacon. So pick any two of either the Bacon Cheese Slider, 1921 Bacon Cheese Slider, or Chicken Bacon Ranch Slider, and also get a small fry for just $5 with the $5 Bacon Bundle. White Castle. Follow your Crave. Legend has it, underneath the NJM insurance offices lies a mysterious room of long-forgotten moldy mascot memorabilia, often pitched by ad agencies, always rejected by NJM. Is it real? We may never know. But what is real is NJM's dedication to doing what's right for their customers. Astoundingly, they're proud to put policyholders first. No jingles or mascots, just great insurance. Learn more at NJM.com. Hi, my name is Rick Singer and I'm the founder of The Key. As a father myself, I understand the stress the college admissions process can put on your family. For the past 25 years, our coaches have been helping students discover their life passion and guiding them and their families through the complex college admissions maze. College has become so expensive and the process is much more complicated than I remember. Without the help of the key, I would have never been able to sort out all the details and my son would have missed his chance to go to USC. My key coach helped me find the real me. I was so excited to uncover my passions for the internet and communications. And I can hardly wait to finish my business degree and start my career in online marketing. You know, after working with The Key, my future is not only something I'm excited about, but it's something I love speaking about and I love thinking about because I know it's going to be filled with success. Getting into the right college will set the trajectory for the rest of your son or daughter's life. Don't leave it to chance. Let a key coach come alongside you and your family to truly unlock your student's potential. Bullshit! Welcome back to Frosters, everyone. I'm Cena Gazdavi. Justin Williams is here as always. Justin Williams Comedy on Instagram. I'm Cena now on all social media. We are here. Episode two, part two of the Rick Singer college admission scandal. Uh, you know, we haven't talked about this on the last episode, but 412-285-1255. Please text us. That is our community text line. The number again is 412-285-1255. 12 Fraudsters LPN on social media, fraudstersLPN at gmail.com. You know, Justin, our grooming fraudster decided it was time to make his move into helping kids get into the school of their dreams. Don't you think it's it's wonderful that he made this shift? Oh, it's very good. Very kind of him. I, I also thought it was great for him to uh, like have the most dispassionate children he could find in that commercial. Uh, it's just like, <laughs> totally like, I am very happy to work with Rick Singer because now I get to go to Harvard and live my lifelong passionate dreams to become an actor. Yeah, I think some prisoners in Iran have confessed in a similar fashion before with like a newspaper yeah. in front of them. Um, <laughs> the You know, the formerly uh, chubby tab runner turned call center czar set his sights on selling the one thing, right, that, that makes every parent Vulnerable, their children's future. 
His first college counseling company started in October of 95 called Future Stars, Inc. with his wife, Allison Carver, a successful real estate agent in Sacramento. Now, Future Stars wasn't just helping with the SATs as a college counselor. He was a college concierge. He helped these young people in the early 90s think about their brand. Imagine being early in on branding, Justin. Yeah, your brand was just you wore Jinko jeans and listened to corn. Yeah. <laughs> so branding, this pre-social media branding, would be the centerpiece of his pitch. I mean, he even wrote a book called Getting In, all about personal branding. And I love this book so much. Uh, we actually had uh, Ed read some chapters as Rick Singer. And the funny thing about this book, Justin, is that there are, let's see here, there are 50 chapters in the book. How many pages do you think a 50-chaptered book is? Uh, You're a PhD. You read a lot of books. How many, how many pages on average would a book be that's 50 uh, chapters? Uh, for academic historical publishing, a 50-page, a 50-chapter book would be like, like an epic, like a multi-volume epic. It'd be like Encyclopedia Britannica, like but like half the letters. That makes sense. Let's actually bring in producer Hazel here. Hazel, a 50-chapter book. You're a Zoomer. You've read things maybe in the physical form that have chapters in your life. Uh, 50 chapters. How many pages do you think a 50-chapter book would be? I don't know, like uh, 300? Very accurate. I was into that as well. 300 to 400 pages. Wait, for 50 <laughs> chapters? Those are still very short chapters, guys. Do you guys know how to do math? <laughs> 50, 50, cha 50 chapters? You think 400 pages? Eight, so it could eight, what, eight pages a chapter? <laughs> That's also very short. I could, I could see that. I just, you know, knee-jerk, I was thinking, I guess like seven or eight. You know, this is, we're not PhDs, Justin. Are you ready for this? Chapter 50 <laughs> is on page 68. <laughs> I was going to say, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> So we're going to hear uh, from Ed Larson, uh, host of The Brighter Side and, and you know, a godfather of the uh, last podcast network here. So you're going to hear from him uh, doing his best Rick Singer. <clears throat> Chapter six. Say your famous last words. Try this thought experiment. Imagine that you're standing at the edge of a rooftop. Far below you on the street, a crowd is gathered. In a few seconds, you're going to have to jump off the roof. Maybe the building's on fire. Or there's a horde of zombies coming up the stairs. In any case, you have just a few seconds left to live. A few seconds in which you can shout one sentence to the listening crowd below. Do, how do you spell crowd? This this is a misspelling. C-R-O-W-E-D? <laughs> crowd. There's no E-D at crowd. the end of crowd. The crowd. They'll hear every word you say and remember them and repeat them to loved ones and strangers. One sentence to leave behind in the world. What do you say? Would you tell someone you love them? Uh, share the most important lesson of your life? Apologize? Sing? Scream? Whatever it is, it's a clue to the deepest, most passionate part of you. It's where you'll find your brand. Thank you, Eddie. Uh, Justin, wh what did that make you feel? Do what would your famous last words be? R.I.P. Harambee! I think I would probably do something. Let's see. Um, 
famous last words like I, I, I shouldn't have had the clams, and then it'd just be dead. You could do uh, Arnold Schwarzenegger's great line from Total Recall, where he shoots Sharon Stone in the head, ah! and then he says, "Consider this a divorce." <laughs> All right, let me let me go forward uh, a whopping five pages to chapter ten, <laughs> chapter six. This is this is called uh, "Try Every Doorknob." Chapter ten, try every doorknob. Sometimes early in the branding process, you find out that your personal brand is a little dull. You'll need to add some pizzazz, a, a new activity, a, a new experience, a new side of yourself, and that's when you look for doorknobs. <laughs> I once knew a student who had a strange habit. Whenever she found herself in an unfamiliar building, instead of looking for an exit, she'd walk around trying every doorknob she could find to see if it was unlocked. Asked why she did it, she said, because eventually you find something interesting. And she did. Once she found an abandoned fallout shelter underneath her high school. Another time she was in a room full of rare books. Once she walked into a conference hall full of brain surgeons and listened to one of them giving a lecture. She still has a button they gave her that says Brain Awareness Week. Just use it. When you need to add to your brand, try jiggling every doorknob in your life. Investigate every option in your school, your family, and your community can offer. Join clubs, take classes, visit museums and concerts and galleries, volunteer, ask questions, watch and listen. Keep it up until you find something you love. You never know what you'll find behind a strange door. I think that is breaking and entering, trespassing, and being a total creep uh, is chapter 10. Yeah, it's, it's very funny because that was written in the 90s, uh, but she was actually arrested at the Capitol riot looking for Nancy Pelosi. <laughs> <laughs> okay, chapter 18, very deep into the book now. We're at page 29. This is really where things are cooking. Uh, make a vow. Chapter 18. Make a vow. A vow is not the same thing as a promise. A promise means you're going to go try and do something if you possibly can. A vow in ancient times meant you were calling on your God of choice to strike you dead if you didn't keep your promise. Nothing says commitment like an incoming lightning bolt. Make a vow to your brand. Whatever brand you've chosen, commit to it. For all four years of high school, and if you're playing a sport, play it all four years. If you're joining the student council, work your way up to president by graduation. If you're starting a sanctuary for orphan baby seals, those seals had better be thriving adult pinnipeds by the time you pick up your diploma. Whatever your brand may be, take it seriously and stick with it for all four years. No changing horses in midstream. If you can't do four years, you're a star athlete who gets your leg amputated or a piccolo player loses her fingers. I don't know. Uh, then find a way to fold your old brand into a new one. It can be done. It just takes commitment. But whatever you do, keep your bow. I think that was very gendered, very troubling. Also, what are you supposed to do after high school? What, are you just going to re reinvent yourself? I also think it's great. It's like the most formative years of a person's life, encouraging them uh, to explore every opportunity, but not allow any of those opportunities to affect their personality or worldview. <laughs> yeah, and, and also, don't change. Yeah, don't change. Don't, don't learn. <laughs> 
in in your most formative years. If that's true, I would still be like listening to like Limp Bizkit every day or something if I just like yeah. didn't change. Oh my god. They say plants like music. Yeah, no, like really, they, they respond to the vibrations of it, which means that this playlist you're listening to, the plants are too. You know what else plants like? Organic soil from miracle Grow. It's made with all the best stuff like wood fiber and compost. Plus, it's OMRI certified organic, which officially means it's made with superior ingredients. And when you give your plants the stuff that makes them happy, they won't judge you on your iffy playlist. Hear that, plants? So go ahead and give them miracle Grow. So one of the things that Rick Singer did is he set up visits on campus for students. He made sure applications were in on time. He was the guy who could get you into your number one pick. I mean, that's a huge deal for people. So in the early 90s, a tight group of wealthy white elite people in Sacramento, because that's where all the fancy folks are at, I guess, got wind of a college counselor that was helping their kids get into school. And this is where Rick Singer gets launched. Right. When rich white people figure out you're in the business of making them stay rich and white generationally and and holding on to that status, they're going to grab onto you. And, and, And all of these folks have to keep up with each other, have to keep up with the country club Joneses, if you will. And they all started hiring Rick Singer and his company. FOMO is a hell of a drug. And the same work ethic that helped him get clients earlier and helped him win that intramural football game that helped him become a monster basketball coach is the same way he was able to get clients here. Again, we're hearing from uh, Melissa Korn. Yeah, it was partly that work ethic. He just never stopped. He was always... You know, bringing on a new client, talking to a new client, pitching them, having new re- a recommendation from a current client. Uh, he would travel around the country to have his clients. They weren't just local. Uh, in some cases, he worked with people from overseas as well. He also, so there was the, the, the charisma that I spoke about earlier, right? Like he just, he sold people really well on his offerings. He was constantly busy. He was always just looking for new people, new things. He was al- he also would do outreach through financial services firms. He would get clients through kind of giving presentations to people who worked with a particular uh, wealth management company. And, you know, they're kind of trying to be a full service firm. We'll help you with your retirement and college savings. And oh, we'll also help you get your kid into college. Use this guy. So he'd kind of give his pitch there and could get a whole lot of clients in one, one go there. He also... College counseling is very much a word of mouth industry. So if some family, you know, their kid gets into Georgetown and they're really proud of that because it seems like it was way above, you know, the, the kid was punching way above their weight there, they'll recommend the counselor to a few more friends and a few more friends and a few more friends. And then as his reputation grew, it kind of expands, you know, out from there. And he had results. He had these students getting into really top-notch, really selective schools. He also had students who went to kind of more 
average institutions, if you will, that aren't as hard to get into. He really cared about the fit for these students a lot of times. He wanted to see them succeed and he'd encourage them to look at schools that weren't maybe on their radar, some places in the Midwest or the South or things like that. But for the the super wealthy families, he often, he was delivering and he was delivering quickly without a huge headache. And families liked that and they wanted to make sure their friends knew about it just the same way you'd recommend, you know, a landscaper or a painter or, you know, a financial advisor. Right. It's sort of, I think it becomes the cool thing. Like, who are you using? Oh, can I get in with them? And once you got in with these groups, it kind of spread because you wanted to use who everybody else was using. Except he didn't have the best batting average at first. You know, at one time, Justin, he urged a young woman to apply to University of North Carolina, not knowing how much more difficult it was to get in if you were out of state. <laughs> she just didn't get Yeah, in. it's almost as if the category of top-tier public schools are, are actually incredibly you know well sought after, even as much as Ivy League schools. It's like, you mean I can't just waltz right into the University of Virginia? <laughs> it's south of the Mason-Dixon. I should be able to get into this one. Come on now. Get the fuck out of here. Right? Yeah, I, I like the dis- what's listed as disappointing schools, where it's like they were in the south and the Midwest. I know that we're probably talking about like Emory in Atlanta yeah. and like Wash U <laughs> in St. Louis, like two of the most elite schools in the country. <laughs> It is it's really striking. And there's like an air of absolute like liberal elitism here that comes into play that just blinds them completely to uh, just, you know, 85 percent of the entire country. I mean, <laughs> yeah, they don't they don't understand like 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 a level of school like an Oberlin just doesn't even it just doesn't even count to them oh, because no. it's not on the coast, you know. No, absolutely not. Yeah. But, you know, he also did a lot of things like he helped on resumes. Great. But when one student wrote that she was a candy striper as work experience, you know, candy striper at the you know hospitals and stuff like that. Do you know he wrote as the description, Justin? <laughs> <laughs> he wrote paint stripes on candy. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> uh, there's nothing there's nothing to really say there. And so another student wrote on <laughs> it's so bad. Like how does you're paying this man thousands of dollars. I would fight him if I saw that. If he did my kid's resume and he wrote, I would honestly I would fight him. I did the M on the M&Ms. Um <laughs> <laughs> So another student wrote an essay and he just responded really quickly with like all caps, great. But when the mom read it, she said it was awful. And then she promptly <laughs> fired Rick Singer. But again, FOMO is a hell of a drug. His business kept growing. People kept hiring him. And embellishing resumes was was very commonplace. Like if you were on the swim team, uh, you could say, you know, things. Here's things that he would say to his 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 team. Again, Eddie Larson. Hey, if you're on the swim team, you could say that you're the captain of the swim team. You're a little lacking in community services, so let's add this to your resume. So he would say things like that, bold faced lies, because it's almost like yes, probably people fudged their uh, resumes to get into college before. 
But there's an assumption on the other end that students aren't going to just be blatantly lying on their college applications. I don't know. You're in academia. Isn't that is that a, a presumption that that admissions officers take? Uh, so I don't work in the admissions department, but I do. I will say that that's a lot. I mean, it's like. No, you can't really do those things. That'd be like me. So I played like basketball in like junior high in Texas. Uh, but, uh, you know, that's like, but that's like pretty competitive because it's like Texas, you know? Yeah. Uh, and if I were to say I was like all district instead of I came off the bench as the 12th man wearing Kareem Abdul-Jabbar gog- goggles and short shorts where I averaged five rebounds and 0.4 <laughs> points a game. Uh <laughs> In garbage time, that like people can look those things up. So if it's just so you, you you're depending on admissions departments like not looking anything up at that point, which is more feasible in the '90s than it is now. It's like it's probably impossible to do now for sure. And it's like if you couple the lies on the resume with. Uh, like a bribe or like some of the, the the side door things that he was doing, then you're looking at information. So like a head of an admissions program would be looking at information that is presumably already vetted by a coach or some other like lower uh, rung admissions official. So they don't have the time if you're a senior admissions person to like look all this stuff up. They're just going to assume like, oh, well, you know, old Terry's got, got, got me covered. <laughs> and he would, and it was crazy. He would write essays for students. Uh, he had one kid say that he was actually, I think he did this multiple times. He had one kid say that he was from an unrepresented minority. And when they were, and when the, and they, they were not, it was a white kid told him, he told the kid to put that he was Hispanic <laughs> and he just said it very casually. Yeah. And not even a white Hispanic, right? Just a white, a white, white. No. Just a white, <laughs> white, yeah. white, right? Exactly. <laughs> you know, but it's funny though. My my parents when I it was after nine eleven when I applied to college, like uh, you know two thousand one, graduated oh two, and I was putting nine eleven because it was a very important thing. My nickname in school was Persia, and I was the only Persia kid. And nine eleven was obviously a big deal for me because everyone was just like, "Oh, Persia!" They were like pointing at me, like, "Oh, we see you now." And then it was like, "All right, I'm gonna make this part of my." college application. I'm an Iranian American. I'm going to do this. I'm going to talk about being this way, you know, and, and who I am. And both my parents were like, this is not a good idea. Sina. It's not a good idea. You should not do that. And I was like, what are you talking about? They're like, they are not going to like, they don't want people like you in this. They're not going to, you are white. Really? You are white. And I was like, I am not white. How is that possible? It's like, Sina, don't tell your Jewish friends, but we are actually Aryan. I was like, that is so far away from logic at this point. I understand the history that you are referring to about how white people moved around or Aryans or Northern Europeans, but we are not Aryans. So it was very uncomfortable getting into college. They have right traditional American logic, but they don't have the right uh, college admissions uh, like post like 1980 logic. Yeah, now now white people are trying to be minorities now. Yeah, white people are white white people uh, <laughs> white people are. <laughs> this is a Paul Mooney joke, but white people are kicking their family trees now, hoping a black person will fall out so they can get into college. <laughs> <laughs> you know, and it's funny because Rick Singer would he would he's so bold, man. This guy's insane. I mean, he would ask the kids permission 
if he could do some of this shit. He would ask, um, let's be clear, he would ask a minor if they, it would be cool if he just blatantly lied on their college applications. And kids who wanted to get into school because they were convinced it would help them be successful and make their parents happy would agree to all this stuff. All Singer wanted to do was win. The short kid at school who didn't come from wealth, who couldn't hold down one gig to provide for himself and had to do like 12 different things, including a vending machine business. He wanted to be done with that life. He wanted to win. He wanted to be the country club guy that was, that was you know, uh, everyone loved. This was a great business for him. He saw how lucrative it was. And we're not talking a few hundred bucks to look over a college essay, people. In, in, in L.A., college counselors would get, you know, 30000 over four years getting a kid in school. But Singer wasn't even making that kind of money yet. He was only getting around 1200 for a client and doing way too much work at that time. He had to keep hustling. And he wasn't going to admit defeat at all. Luck changed, though, when one of his clients got him a job. And this is where the story kind of gets weird. He takes a departure from being a college counselor and gets a job managing call centers for the money store. Do you remember the money store, Justin? (laughs) Pause. Pause. You will when you hear this. Holy cow. Are you as confused as I am about these new tax laws? Thank goodness you can buy all the things you need with a fixed rate second mortgage loan as low as today's prime rate of 7.5%. That's right, 7.5%. Best of all, the low interest payments may be fully deductible. Qualified homeowners get instant approval. Call the money store toll free. Dial 1-800-221-9000. Dude, that was Phil Rizzuto <laughs> doing the Money Store commercial in the in the 80s and early 90s. I mean, the Money Store was an insane place. People loved using the Money Store to like get money. It was like this whole like kind of like little scammy but not so scammy place. <laughs> it was just one of those things that the government didn't care enough to like regulate. Hey, it's me, Yankees legend Phil Rizzuto. And uh, I'm doing this commercial for the Money Store because I do not have money. <laughs> that is totally what has <laughs> happened here. And it's weird because, yeah, I thought the, I thought the money store was a scam, but I guess it's not a scam. It's kind of like a it's, it's a payday lender in a way, but not, a little bit different. I don't know. <laughs> I, maybe we'll do a whole episode of the money store because I really would like to learn about it. Singer, though, was hired at the money store as like a mid-level manager. And he told people he though he was a senior executive, which is the best. I mean, the days before LinkedIn, right? And his job was to recruit people and train them in how to answer phones. Okay, this is ripe for him he was successful but the money store got bought in 1998 and singer was off to continue the altruistic work of managing other call centers this time (laughs) cue cue the airplane sound effect here he went to india there he became ceo of a company called first ring where he trained the staff to be better english speakers and operators he wanted everyone making sales. Even managers should be making calls. Can you imagine that? You are in, uh, you're in a call center in India, and you think your job is to just manage these people on the phone, but the CEO, this, like, this aggressive white dude is just eating nuts and drinking tab all day, comes in and is like, you got to be making calls too, buddy. Let's go. And this is just like a weird aside in his life, really. He had preferred shares in this company, and in four years, he made a bunch of money, and he was out, sitting pretty. But this guy wasn't done. He had to come back 
and get back into college counseling. Okay, so he's now back in America. <laughs> he's now back in America doing college counseling again with a new company, College Source. Uh, word got around, and this is his company, by the way. Word got around that Sacramento that Rick was back. He's back, boom, back in the New York groove. <laughs> and all the high school counselors who had to deal with him before were collectively eye-rolling. I mean, can you imagine? You thought this guy was gone, and then like a few years later, you're like, man, I'm really happy. My husband and I were able to go through counseling and, and really rebuild our marriage because work was just so stressful. And it's like 25 emails from Rick Singer just flying into your inbox like, oh, no. And now he was just bold-faced lying all over the place, just encouraging kids to lie on the resumes. He would get passwords and fill out their information for them. One student needed to pass Algebra 2 to get into a D1 school. Problem was, he didn't pass Algebra 1. Seems like an issue, which means you don't go to geometry and, of course, no Algebra 2. But So are you telling me that for this math course, if you don't get past one, you can't go to two. <laughs> X minus one equals one. What is X? <laughs> but uh, but this is how Rick got out of this little predicament here. He's a regular A team all wrapped up in one. Rick Singer enrolled the kid in an online Algebra 1 and Geometry class and, and Algebra 2 all in his senior year. And what do you know? He passed all of these classes online and got credit for all three classes. Huh. We aren't, listen, we, again, we're a research-based show. Uh, we aren't 100% sure if Rick Singer himself took the classes for the kid or if the kid took the you know, classes. Maybe he's a genius and just didn't try hard and all of a sudden he was, he was doing it. But later in the Varsity Blues filings, it's known that Rick Singer would hire people <laughs> To take online classes for students. <laughs> Just some kid, like some thick glasses nerd, like with a 56K modem sitting in a dark room taking all these online classes for everybody. <laughs> Crush, he's got four computers up. He's doing, doing being four people at the same time. Okay, so here's another thing that he would do. To get us a client switched out of a math class, he would get a meeting with the math teacher, okay, a school counselor, and the student's uncle. All right, so three people. Rick wasn't there. It would be the math. He would he would facilitate it, right? But it'd be the math teacher, the counselor, and the student's uncle. At the meeting, the uncle uh, would just berate the teacher and just shit on the class and just tell them how awful the class is for, for their niece or nephew. But here's what's great. The student's uncle was not actually the kid's uncle. It was someone that was on Rick's payroll. And this worked multiple times. The math teacher and the counselor, they just took it. They didn't know that someone would be bold enough to bring in a different family member. And then the student, the students just sitting there, they're happy as a fucking clam. <laughs> if you think about it, like if your parents are allowing this to happen, they're your moral compass. They're the ones that are saying, hey, something is wrong, something is right. This is right to have some strange man. And, and listen, I grew up, and I don't know if you did too, everybody's an uncle. When I introduce people to my kid to people, I'm like, this is your no, auntie, if you're this smart. is your uncle. Everyone's an uncle or an auntie. So maybe, I don't know, maybe I'm in the wrong. You would have taken all these rich white kids to the school and just gave them a crazy black uncle. 
So that way, uh, the teacher like couldn't really question it without feeling like racist. It's just like it's just Samuel L. Jackson. And you, you are the uncle for Tyler. Tyler's my motherfucking Tyler. nephew, bitch. Okay, okay. You, this math oh. class bullshit, motherfucker. Oh right. Now let me tell you something. Tyler plays guess... water polo. He's president of the motherfucking water mm-hmm. polo team. <laughs> <laughs> Yes, we appreciate his 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 water polo <laughs> athleticism, but he's just not very good at math. Are you sure? Do you? What you go, think I can't be Tyler's uncle? Mary in? What you think I don't like Vivaldi you, and that shit? You think, <laughs> what you think you, you better than me? What you racist? Just seems you probably think OJ's like, guilty. I I mean no no please I I mean I I think it's just I respect the criminal justice system and the jury process in America. One plus one equals the black man in jail. You think I can't beat Tyler's uncle? Let me tell you something. I got all kinds of white nieces and nephews. Chaz, Gertrude, Walker. Walker. All them motherfuckers is my family. Now, if you don't want Farrakhan and Johnny Cochran at this school, then you need to let my white nieces and nephews pass this math class, bitch. <laughs> I think we can think about some extra credit. We'll just get right on that. Thank you, Tyrone. My and name is Simon. Uh, one parent. Racist bitch. <laughs> one parent, though, Justin, had to... <laughs> my name is Simon Faust, motherfucker. Uh, one... <laughs> <laughs> Oh, jeez. One parent, Justin, had to change the passwords on their son's computer and applications because Singer kept going in and and changing the race of their son to different things. <laughs> so, so they also put, <laughs> Singer would also put that he had written scripts uh, for TV that were on TV, but they weren't on TV. The kid just wrote scripts as like a hobby. But Rick said they were <laughs> they had made it to television. Another kid, he said that uh, the kid raised money to build a playground in Helen Keller Park. Uh, <laughs> true, just not true. He also told one student to put that he had patented an invention. So it's like the these aren't just like. What your lie that you said as an example earlier, if I would have said I was all district instead of like, that lie is actually like such a level one fib. These are like level 10. You've uh, you've upgraded your character to every conceivable point. There's no other higher level of lying that you can achieve. Less like one of these kids is an actual sitting senator. That's that's the only thing that he could do. That's left. Yeah, you see this kid uh, with bad acne and giant braces in his mouth? He actually wrote Pulp Fiction. Uh, yeah, the film Pulp Fiction, he actually wrote that. Uh, yeah. He's what we call a savant. <laughs> but but is, so rest easy, though. If you weren't getting to your first school with Rick, Singer was able to make up stats to say that you did anyways. <laughs> and it just allowed him to get access to not just like the local business owners of Sacramento, but also C-suite executives at multinational corporations, that generational wealth money, because that's what he was building his entire business on. So at the end of the day, no matter what level of wealth 
you are at as a parent, you still want your kids to get into the best school, to have the best chance at life, to have the best education. And wealthy parents just had more of an ability to do it. He described himself now as a master coach. And he defined that as somebody who works with the overall person, both professionally and personally. I mean, he had no background in psychology or mental health, but yet he's a master coach. Sure, of course, right. More on that in a moment after this gentle ad break. Okay, so Singer is back in full swing, and he's evolved his corporate structures a little bit here, Justin. He's gone from the college source to Edge College and Career Network, LLC, which is the for-profit company for coaching and college placement and stuff. And he called this the key. But then, confusingly, there was a nonprofit he had called the Key Worldwide Foundation. Okay, so that's a foundation. Now, the corporate filings on these two companies are like an infinite loop of bullshit, and I can't tell you how annoying it was to read them, but when you search for one, another comes up and vice versa, and they all, there's kind of like a lot of co-mingling here, but truth be told, it's a shit show. These two companies work together. If anyone took a little bit more of a, uh, you know, a, a tougher look at them earlier on, this probably scandal would have never happened. Yeah. In fact, uh, the more you look into it, uh, you just end up chasing around the key master from the Matrix for everything. <laughs> <laughs> like do just random shining doors. <laughs> I like how the Matrix also at a certain point turned into like a Benny Hill bit. <laughs> just going through doors. <laughs> Uh, the Key Worldwide Foundation was formed in 2006, and, and this, again, the nonprofit, the foundation. And this is really where all, like, the, the party happened, right? So th that was formed in 06 out of Newport Beach, California, with a business address also in Sacramento. So you can start seeing the NorCal and SoCal connection. And so now here's their mission statement that, that we found on, on a site. The Key Worldwide Foundation endeavors to provide education that would normally be unattainable to underprivileged students. Not only attainable, but realistic. With programs that are designed to assist young people in everyday situations and educational situations, we hope to open new avenues of educational access to students that would normally have no access to these programs. Our contributions to major athletic university programs may help to provide placement to students that may not have access under normal channels. Huh. Interesting, Justin. They were only in it for the children, the underprivileged children. Ah, uh, yes. The children of uh, parents that only made seven figures. <laughs> not those, <laughs> those eight-figure children. <laughs> the poor seven-figure children need help. It's so funny that they, you know, this is how bold the, the, the scam is here, right? And it's so shocking. In their mission statement, they are admitting to the donations they are giving to athletic programs. It's like, this is the reality distortion field happening right here in front of you. You see it right here. We're saying we're donating to athletic programs, which isn't illegal, but the way they're doing it is wildly illegal. And it's also like... 
as if the athletic programs at these major universities aren't the way that a lot of underprivileged students are, are getting gaining admission. It's like you don't need to donate to the football team to get underprivileged kids into great colleges. It's like that's the football <laughs> team's job. Yeah. Uh, to get an idea of how the scam worked, we're going to listen to the only actual audio I was able to find of Rick Singer speaking on these wiretaps. And this is with John Wilson, a hedge fund manager who would use Rick's services for his kids. Now, again, this is the only audio. It's a little fuzzy. Everything else was in transcript form. That's what we have the great Ed Larson for. But I think this will give you a really cool sense of, of what was happening. If you said, right. and you know this, that if you said you wanted to go somewhere like Stanford or Harvard or Yale and go through a different door, you can do that. But to go in directly, you got to be... Just to play, you got to be 35, 36, plus essentially perfect grades. And then you got to have subject test scores in the mid 700s. Right. Okay. Well, that's good, uh, good general uh, direction. And then on the, um, uh, the other doors, you have certain things like crew. Can they try that? Is that still your, your number one to differentiate? They had a really good time. They can work on that and get a time of X. That might be a second door, or you have the other door where, you know, you can, you know, make a contribution kind of thing. Yeah, so we, we're, that's why I'm going to Harvard next Friday, because the president wants to do a deal with me, because he found out that I've already got four already in without his help. So he's like, how about, why would you go to somebody else if you could come to me? I said, well, I didn't know I could come to you. That's funny, yeah. I knew Drew. Drew used to be on our board, but uh, she's gone now. I don't know this new guy. But uh, yeah. so, what kind of deals is it there? Is it like you know, trying to do something with water polo and a donation, or what is it like you know, to get into that? So where so pick a place you want to go. So if you said uh, HBA, Harvard, a business school, but if you said a Harvard or Princeton or Georgetown, you know, what are those things? So Harvard, Harvard is. Uh, it's usually about 1.2 million. Stanford is 1.2, um, but you know the back door is Harvard's asking for 45 million. <laughs> Stanford's asking for 50 million. Million. Wow. And they're getting it. That's the crazy thing. They're getting it from the Bay Area and from New York. Crazy. Wow. Crazy. Absolutely crazy. So, Jeez, but, what about what about like Georgetown or uh, those other ones or yeah? Yeah, so Georgetown's like five hundred. BC's same thing. Um, so you know those are your kind of your numbers across the board at different places. You know, USC hasn't changed. Um, UCLA can be done for about three. Um, you know, public schools are really hard in California because everybody's watching them. So let's stop it there. This is what's insane to me is that you can say, hey, I'm doing this for the underprivileged students and and stuff. But really, you are just creating like a menu for the wealthy to buy their kids into school, which makes it. 10x harder for an underprivileged kid to get into the school. Yeah, absolutely. Taking spots, you know, somebody that is an underprivileged kid that actually has good grades and can get into those things is actually losing a spot. You know, it's funny for all the people that kind of complain about affirmative action, they never complain about 
the children of donors or like legacy admissions and those things, those people who are actually not really merit based at all. Uh, you know, yeah. For, yeah. Uh, so people that gain college admissions due to affirmative action at least have components that are merit based. They're not just saying we're taking any black person or any Asian person or any Hispanic person. They're like, we're, to, you know, in the event that uh, they those people from underrepresented groups have the same grades as uh, like a white student, like and we'll give it to the underrepresented student. This isn't merit at all. It's just purchasing. And, and you bring up a good point, though, too, because even if you're a wealthy kid and you didn't buy your way into school, your parents could hire a tutor that help you learn for the test that you have to take. Right. So you're not actually getting smarter. You're just learning how to game a test. And that helps you get better scores. And you could just be a complete idiot but you figured out a little game uh to play with the with the test and you get by and then you get into the school because you're a legacy i mean that is it's i mean it's crazy this is unbelievable Uh, let's go back to melissa and jennifer for a little bit more insight on uh the scam itself and we'll go back to uh john and rick as well So there were two kind of paths. So one path that Rickster was able to use was like the, we're going to help you with your scores. And then the other path was like the sports kind of path. Is that right? Yeah. And there are some families that did both. Um, but oh, the, why not? Why not? Uh, <laughs> and, right. So the, the, the athletics one was, you know, the family would make a payment to him. Some portion of that money would go to the coach who was doing this favor for him or, you know. Uh, very clear quid pro quo in some of these cases uh, to tag the student as a recruit, uh, even if they often didn't play the sport at all. And they would get some money, sometimes like a private sports athletic club they ran would get some money, Singer's Foundation would get some money, and the foundation was a good cover for these payments because it could be written off on taxes as a charitable donation, which is just a little bit of icing on the cake there for these families. That's the kicker right there. I'll make you a sailor or something. You gotta be fucking kidding. <laughs> you gotta go on a campus wearing a sailor outfit and stuff for at least Wouldn't like a week. If the kid, he, he just if he was on the crew team, he just started carrying a paddle with him everywhere. It's like my dad told me I'm on the crew team, so this is uh, I guess what I gotta do. I gotta carry this. I'll, if they want a musical theater kid, your kid's going to be the lead in Rent. <laughs> All right, Justin, there's also this other part here that is tax deductible, and I just want to play a quick clip uh, from the, the tap again about that. That's a big issue. <laughs> oh, my God. Is that, uh, are those numbers, are there any way to make those like tax deductible or the donations from the school and stuff? How does that work? They're all tax, it's all tax deductible. It's, it's going into a nonprofit. 5013C. It's all, it's all, it's all tax deductible. Every, every piece of it. Justin, the children, the children need help. The poor kids need help. Of course, of course they need help. But the different types of nonprofits have different rules. And this is what's really important here. In 2012, the IRS approved Key Worldwide Foundation as an exempt organization under 501c3. So 501c3 we know is like the standard nonprofit uh, category. We've heard that last season uh, with Umar Johnson, actually, I believe. Uh, we heard that in, in some other places as well. That means you don't have to pay federal income taxes. So the Church of Scientology, it was a big deal for them to become a 501c3. Other, the Catholic Church, you know, you get to do all the crazy shit that they've done over the last 50, 60, 70 years, and they're still 
a tax-exempt organization. People donate to your 501c3 can write that off on their taxes. But here's the kicker. Key Worldwide Foundation also qualified as a public charity rather than a private foundation. So private foundations also have more mandatory paperwork to ensure like they appropriately use the funds and stuff like that. So they have to disclose uh, who their donors are, as well as like the minimum asset distribution requirements and stuff like that. So how much are you giving away and how much are you spending on your company? You know, cash donations are 100% deductible in a public charity. And with a public charity, you actually don't have to disclose they're donors on tax forms, but for private foundations, you do. Okay, so when parents would wire money to, to Key Worldwide, an employee of Key Worldwide would send a letter back saying, no goods or services were exchanged, boom, whole thing, tax deductible. IRS tax form filed for the Key Worldwide Foundation between 2013 and 2016 show that they got $7.1 million in contributions and spent about $5 million in donations to prominent schools, USC, Yale, UT Austin. They also said that no one took a salary and that 99% of their expenditures went to helping young people. <laughs> yeah, they were helping young people, all right. <laughs> they were helping young, rich, illiterate people. <laughs> Go to UT. Hook them horns. Where they, they they got drunk and then paid somebody else to do their homework in their 400-person <laughs> lecture hall class. But just, we actually didn't even get to my favorite part here, buddy. You're going to love this. You're going to love this. So on their tax forms, they listed – this is – I fucking love this show for this kind of shit. Their tax forms, they listed that they gave $19,500 to Friends of Cambodia – which provides college room and board assistance to impoverished young people in Cambodia. This organization, okay, has no record of getting this donation or anything from Key Worldwide. And when they were asked, they said that their max donation ever was $10,000. And get this, they don't even receive funds directly. They work with an umbrella nonprofit that funnels the money down to them, which is very common because a 501c3 infrastructure is very hard to maintain. So a lot of nonprofits do this where they partner with a big umbrella nonprofit and they handle all the back office stuff. So it's just that simple. The plan is just straight bribing and then he put on the Friends of Cambodia. You think they were laughing when they wrote that? I mean, it's just... It's fucking remarkable. We're very friendly with the people of Cambodia. <laughs> the We've done a lot of good Cambodia. work in Cambodia. <laughs> just imagine someone taking the flight over to Cambodia to go like <laughs> see, and they're just like, what? Uh, so let's go back to Melissa for a little bit here. So that was one part. And then the testing part was Singer uh, worked with a few people, test site administrators that he paid off and a... Uh, a test proctor that he paid off who would go in and, you know, conduct the exam for somebody, administer the exam, and then fix their wrong answers after the kid left, or in some cases, just feed them the right answers right then and there if the kid was in on it. And they could, they could pinpoint and target and achieve a very particular score. The proctors for any exam that I've ever taken especially growing up in Pittsburgh, was like a 70-year-old guy that was like a Vietnam vet. He's like, 
All right, Jens, we're going to take the SATs today. All right, I'm going to do the roll call. Who's this name? Sheena? All right, you got your pencil. I mean, it's I can't I can't even imagine someone <laughs> that's got like like a genius level IQ that's coming in to like do this. Well, part of the way he could do it is these the kids would get assessed for having learning differences, having certain special needs where they need extra time on the test and enough extra time, they could go take the test somewhere else and take it in, you know, a quiet room by themselves. So it's just them and the proctor. So no one knows what goes on inside those walls. Okay. So it seems like Rick Singer's background as an assistant basketball coach gave him knowledge of athletic departments. And from reading over the files, it seems like he targeted smaller sports for the fraud because he knew that those coaches uh, were lower on the food chain as far as pay at those universities. Were there ever any, I don't know, cases of him having a student lie about being, I don't know, like a seven foot tall, uh, like potential NBA draft pick and like a five foot four uh, Instagram influencer just gets dunked on for a day before being dismissed uh, by the coach. Did that ever happen? Did anyone? Did any coaches ever call the bluff on any of these things, or they were all bribed? Uh, well, what happened was, you know, as, as you said, so it was a well-oiled machine by the end where he had in an inn at the school where he would present these fake profiles, and then they would be tagged as walk-on uh, players. But he did, as you said, he targeted sports that had great big rosters that were didn't have a lot of oversight, like crew and um, uh, tennis. And he, uh, what was the other one? Women's soccer was another Women's one. Soccer. And so then you get, so the student gets tagged as a walk-on and then they come to school and you think, well, how does they, how do they get away with that? Well, the genius is like, you never have to show up. And he, they would even have backstories in case anyone asks, like, you've got planter over the summer, um, you know, some sort of injury, you can't go. And so this just kind of continued because the coaches were sort of in on it. So they're not going to say, oh, so-and-so never showed up for the team. But there were a few cases where by the time the kid got to school, uh, there was a new coach who was like going through the list and where is so-and-so and asking around and they would be in a flurry. There's emails and texts and calls where they're like, what do we do? And they'd have to come up with a, a whole plan like, you know, um, we'll, we'll, you know, just a, a backstory. So you know how hard it is to keep up a lie and just imagine a lie of this scale with all these people so that did get complicated jennifer like, we don't lie on this show it's called fraudsters for a reason we're but most who's honest ever had people. to keep up a lie like <laughs> don't tell your parents we're going with them here yeah. or something and then you're in fear somebody's always going to say it oh, of course right? like yeah. the minute you think you're not supposed to say it you, you blurt it out <laughs> i mean that's one of my <laughs> favorite things about this whole this is like on a grand scale and there's many cases of people just accidentally um say one of my favorite is this this kid who got into usc um i should say his his parents his mother has pleaded not guilty so he allegedly got into usc as a uh, a track star and um, went, didn't run, was not a pole vaulter, and he was at a school for orientation and somebody talking to him, like an advisor said, I see you're on the track team. And this kid was in the dark and he called his mom and was like, they think I'm on the track team. And then there's this whole back and forth in the court files between Rick Singer and the mom where they're trying to figure out, she's like, what do I tell him? And how do we get around this? And what, ha what would happen is he would give it to um, the school would have, if something came up, would 
give it to the person who's now accused of taking um, bribes from Rick Singer. She's also pled not guilty, but like an inside administrator there. So the 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 hens, you know, that were watching allegedly watching the you know, the fox, fox was watching the hen house. house. <laughs> 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 This is literally the plot of the Rodney Dangerfield film, Back to School, where the father (laughs) just buys his uh, son's place on the swim team. And so does Rodney. And they, like, end up winning a championship. Right. Right. (laughs) Justin, this is, I mean, you were very correct in saying this is the plot of Rodney Dangerfield's Back to School, where... It was funny when Rodney did it, but it's illegal and shady and awful when we see it happen in real life. <laughs> yeah, man, it's, uh, it's it's you know, there's no no young Robert Downey Jr. in this this story. So, oh gosh, that's right, and that guy that was in the that those horror movies, um, Uncle yeah, Boingo, so- I think they played the <laughs> they were the band at the party. And uh, who, who and the lead singer Ogo Bongo does film scores. Is it Danny Elfman? I think, and he's married to somebody um, real hot and famous. Can you look up Danny Elfman? Oingo. Danny Elfman in nineteen seventy nine. Okay, Ogo Bongo was the name of the band. I think. Oh, Bridget Fonda. Whatever happened to Bridget Fonda? She got killed in uh, Jackie Brown. No, that was oh, right, no, that right, was right, right, right. no, that wasn't Bridget. Which Fonda, Fonda was that? That was one of the Fondas. That was Bridget was Fonda. That, that was Bridget a... Fonda. That was Bridget Fonda. Get out! That was Bridget and Jackie Brown yeah. and uh, Bobby De Niro uh, for being shoots. annoying. <laughs> he just shoots. <laughs> uh, I liked her in um, the movie that they made. They adapted from La Femme, the key point of no return, where she played the drug addict that they made into a like super secret agent killer. I thought she was so oh, cute yeah. when I was growing up. That was one of my first things where I I saw a woman on screen that awakened something in me. Oh, jeez. So big shout out to Bridget Fonda. What was the last thing that she did here? She, Let's see. She quit Let's acting. It may have been around Jackie Brown, actually. Yeah, I think so. It looks like it looks like she quit after 2002. Yeah. God damn. Oh, she was on the Larry Sanders show? I got to go back and look at that episode. All right. Well, we digress here. This system that Rick Singer had was cruising and it ran on everyone basically not saying anything or I think more appropriately everyone accepting that this was a reality of how they were going to get their kids into college like none of them really felt on a on a moral level maybe this is overstepping a little bit that they were doing something uh, you know super illegal you know, I, maybe they chalked it up to something like insider trading or something like that where they got a hot sock tip from a buddy. But they just thought this was normal. And I think that's almost more shocking or more troubling. Yeah, it's it's it's, it's like an acknowledgement of a level of corruption and privilege in the system to where it becomes like normalized. Right? Yeah. So uh, I, we're going to get back to Melissa and Jennifer here to kind of talk about the progressive downfall and how this whole thing unraveled. So let's talk about how it all blew up, because as you said earlier, this could have kept going, which is, to me, so funny and terrible. Laughing is the only way I know how to deal with something this terrible. But how did 
Rick Singer go down eventually? And did he go down? Do we can we even say he went down at the end of the day? So- so the the way this ultimately broke was prosecutors and the SEC, the feds were looking at a pump and dump scheme, so a securities fraud case. And one of the guys involved in that agreed to plead, and he was brought in to the prosecutor's office in Boston. And as part of a plea agreement, you kind of have to go in and tell air all of your dirty laundry, right? If you're going to be a, a witness for the prosecution, they want to know that they can trust you and something some dirty secret from your past isn't going to come up while you're on the witness stand. So he's got to just talk about absolutely everything. And they ask him, you know, we're noticing some financial, in your financial statements, some money moving from your account to this account in Connecticut. What's up with that? His response was along the lines of, oh, I'm paying Yale's women's soccer coach to get my daughter into school. Oh, yeah, nothing nothing crazy here, nothing to see. What else (laughs) do you want to know? They were like, okay, um, good to know, and, you know, kept asking questions, and then as soon as they could, you know, ran down, the prosecutor ran down the hall to his boss's office, was like, you're never going to guess what I just heard. (laughs) Because, I mean, bribing an Ivy League coach is just so delicious that they knew that they wanted to pursue that a little bit further. Uh, They ended up um, arranging for this guy and the coach to meet at a hotel in Boston uh, to kind of finalize the details of the deal. And that's when they took down the coach, got him to cooperate, got his uh, permission to record phone calls that he made uh, when he was talking to Rick Singer, because at that point they still hadn't heard Rick Singer's name until that hotel room when the coach was trying to remember exactly which shady deal this was. He was like, wait, was this through Rick Singer? Or did, did you and I arrange this on our own? And because <laughs> he had deals going both ways. So they wanted to get up on Rick Singer's phone. So they listened for months to the coach, Rudy Meredith, talking to Rick Singer. And then they got a wiretap on Rick Singer's phone. And then after a few months uh, of collecting just amazing transcripts of phone calls and catching text messages and emails and all that, they uh, took Rick Singer down. They approached him. They got him to cooperate. So then his phone was being recorded with his permission. And he would make these phone calls to all of his clients, current and former clients. Hey, remember that uh, you know bribery thing we did? And remember how you wrote that off as a as a charitable donation, and it was totally just a payment for me. And all that stuff was recorded. Um, and he had kind of under the guise that uh, the tax man was looking at him, so they might get called. And let's get our stories straight. So Rick Singer's a rat. Yeah. He flipped yes. on everybody. It was a chain of because... rats, basically. Everybody just flipped, flip, flip. And then the funny thing about Rick Singer, you know, as we said, he's so competitive. So after some initial um, trepidation, kind of he wasn't a real reliable witness. He, he went a bit, little bit off, far afield and um, obstructed justice. But he gets back on and he just decides he's going to be um, the, the winning, most winning witness ever. And <laughs> Of course. He just I'm going to be the best boss. rat. He comes into Boston, they just set him in the conference room, he's got his tracksuit on, he's like swishing down the hall, and he just sits there and he's like dialing for, you know, dialing for parents into the night, and just getting people left and right to admit admit things. Uh, he was, um, you know, one of the most prolific government witnesses they've, they've seen. <laughs> One of the greatest rats. 
in the history of the game. This guy cheesed on everybody. You know, like we had Sammy the Bull, you know, but then it's no Rick Singer. He flipped on everybody. Now, uh, we 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 went a little longer than we normally do here, uh, but I want to tell you about next week's episode because we're actually going to dive into what uh, Melissa briefly mentioned was the guy in Boston that started the flipping. And for me, that struck me as like, well, if everyone agreed to all of this, everyone was keeping their, you know, playing it close to the chest and not saying anything, what made this guy flip? What was so crazy that this guy flipped on Rick Singer and then that started this complete domino effect? And we'll get into Maury Tobin next week as well as all the other parents and the other facilitators and accomplices to Rick Singer's network, including Justin, the full house lady, which I'm sure you'll be happy uh, for us to be talking about. <laughs> um, we we have so much to cover. We couldn't cover all of the parents and all of the, the accomplices uh, in just one episode. So next week, we're going to do something special. We're going to play Fraudster's Roulette, and we're going to spin a wheel, and wherever that wheel lands, we're going to talk about that uh, that person. And so I think that's going to be a fun way to do it. Also, it's, you know, it'll be like a little bit of a random thing for us uh, to try to like figure this out because we have research on all of these people and we want to, we want to try to get it out in some form to you. Uh, anyways, thanks for listening for this week. I'm at Cena now at Justin Williams comedy uh, on Instagram. Uh, please give us a text at uh, 412-285-1255 on our community text line. Fraudsters is a production of Zero Cool Media and Last Podcast Network. Hazel Bryan produced this episode. Ian Brannon is our editor. Our associate producer is Anna Laranaga. Emily Fusco is our researcher. Our legal intern, big thanks, Gregory Fingerhut. Our theme music is by Simon Tafik. And music in this episode was composed by Chris Olson. And also a huge thank you to Jennifer Levitz and Melissa Korn for speaking to us for this series. See you next time.